If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. Set participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For millennia, humans have cut down trees and used wood to create buildings, ships, tools, weapons and everyday objects that we still use around the home. But what can studying this most resilient of materials teach us about the history of our species? Author and archaeologist Max Adams spoke with John Balkum about his new book, which takes readers on a journey through an imaginary museum filled with some of the world's most remarkable wooden creations. So to begin, Max, I wanted to ask about the title of your new book. What is the Museum of the Wood Age? Well, I should admit that when I started this project, I was going to travel around the world looking at interesting places and things and objects and talking to people. I wanted to go to Japan to see the great wooden temples and to the Pacific northwest of America to look at the ancient woodworking there, all sorts of ideas, Romanian churches, Russian churches. And because of COVID initially, of course, um, that was all scuppered. And I thought, well, I can either... admit defeat on this or or turn it into a virtue. So in fact, uh, what I decided to do was create in my mind a virtual museum because there, there is no museum of the history of wood anywhere as far as I know. 
Um, so I thought I would create that museum in my mind and explore it as as a sort of psychological landscape as much as a real one. So I've, I've essentially stolen all the things that I wanted to go and see from the internet, books, my experience and, and, and previous travels, brought them together in this museum of the wood age. It's a sort of part wish fulfillment, really. I, I wish there were such a place. And it's an open-air museum, and yet it's a, a museum of multiple spaces, um, and ideas. It, it's much more about ideas than things. And I suppose part of it is because I'm uncomfortable with museums and glass cases and arrows telling you where to go and labels telling you what to think. By training, I'm an archaeologist, but um, I, I spend a lot of my time walking and rummaging through bits of the countryside. And there's something much more attractive about a uh, a shambolic half-fallen-down farmer's barn than there is a perfect wooden artefact in a display case in a museum. So I really wanted to share that 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 sense of exploration and self-discovery with people rather than try and tell people what they should think about history and, in particular, the history of our relationship with wood. And, I mean, in fact, I think you describe yourself as a, a museum anarchist and that you want to go the wrong way around a museum. But what would be the the oldest item that someone encountered in this hypothetical museum. Well, I suppose part of the part of the purpose of the book is to is to render visible that which is invisible. Um, the the history of the Wood Age, as I call it, which is to say that I think all all the ages of humanity really have been about our relationship with wood and its primacy as our technological tool right up until the eighteenth century, um, but. But oddly enough, in tracing the history of the Wood Age, I, I came to the realisation that actually the Wood Age is older than humans. So, uh, you know, primates make nests, primates use sticks, uh, uh, they, they, use the, they use the resources of trees and woods in their, in their natural habitats. I, I think the oldest artefact that we possess is, is, a, is an object called the Clacton Spear. And, and to be fair, it doesn't look much like a spear. It's it's not all that long, but it is clearly pointed and clearly was fashioned. And it was made about 400,000 years ago. And modern humans are only 200 250,000 years old. So it's older than modern humans, probably made by a, one of our ancestors called Homo heidelbergensis. And it was dug out of the mud in Clacton-on-Sea, um, in the early part of the 20th century and rather brilliantly preserved by the, the man who discovered it, Samuel Hazeldean Warren, a beautiful name. And I suppose the fascinating thing about this object, which you can still see, is, is not that it's in the Science Museum as the first human-made wooden object that we have, but it actually sits in the Natural History Museum because it's an artefact of our evolutionary history as much as it is one of technology. Fascinating. So, so when do I mean when do humans come onto the scene and start getting more adventurous with the types of things that they construct? When do they start making shelters and more ambitious things? Well, of course, we don't know. It's the simple answer because all those things are gone. You know that that one artifact from nearly half a million years ago has to stand for all the other wooden things. We know that orangutans are masters of a technique called green stick fracture. That is, they can break a, a fresh branch almost in half but it won't break. And they can use it to construct themselves a nest, if you like, which they do every night. Um, 
And so I think it's almost certain that the earliest Homo sapiens did much the same thing and then began to create more, if you like, purposeful structured things. But our, our earliest understanding of humans manipulating their environment um, is gone. We suspect that was the use of fire to attract game on the savannah. Uh, our oldest artefacts that, that have humanoid origins are stone axes, uh, pieces of stone that were modified to make hammers or scrapers or sharp points or spears or clubs or whatever. And of course, if, if you've ever tried cutting a tree down with a stone axe held in your hand, first of all, you'll hurt yourself. <laughs> and second of all, it'll take you a very long time. Um, the thing that really separates humans out from our ancestors is attaching a stone blade, a, a work stone tool, to a, to a tool handle. Hafting is really the oldest sign. And we, we think round about the time that the Clacton spear is being made, uh, hominins are just beginning to understand the idea that, of attaching two things together to make one thing. And of course, I think we underestimate, because we don't find it, it's invisible, it's gone, long gone, we underestimate the, the need for humans to understand how to attach things to other things what I call cordage, one of the, the simple devices, like the spring and the lever and, and the wedge. Uh, not tying, lashing things together is an absolutely key skill in human evolution. And as far as we know, none of our primate rivals, and, and those rivals are really not things like chimpanzees or gorillas, they're actually baboons who share our early environment. And they didn't work out how to dig roots up with a stick or find water by digging for it or or learn the secrets of hafting. And they didn't learn the secret of controlling fire. So those technologies really separate us uh, from our from our nearest relations. Indeed. You, you mentioned something called the sweet track in Somerset, which is something I'd not heard of. Could you explain what that is and why it's important? Well, uh, the Somerset levels, like the East Anglian fens, are are wet, much less so than they used to be. And for hundreds of years, uh, people have been digging peat out of those fens, both for fertilisers and for fuel. Um, and in the 1960s, it became obvious to local archaeologists, um, in, in particular John and Bryony Coles, who were the pioneers of this, that um, wooden structures were buried in that peat, and they started to excavate them. And the most remarkable... Uh, one they they excavated, which which is five thousand years old, is a trackway built between two islands, or at least a dry land and an island in the Somerset Fens, um, right across semi-open water, bog, marsh, and it was built by driving piles uh, of uh, cut poles into the marshes in a sort of X shape like a trestle, and then connecting those X shapes with, with boards. And in a way, it looks rather primitive. But what it shows is, is that they were understanding the management of wood, that those poles are such regular sizes, they must have been cut from trees which were cut on a regular basis. So this isn't people going out into the primeval forest and finding a branch. These are people who manage their woodlands to produce the same things every few years. Um, and this is in the Neolithic period, the, before metal tools, and they managed to construct this this trackway and indeed several others. Um, and they constructed it, we think, in a very short time, days if not weeks, so that they had all their materials pre-prepared. So we're, we're looking at a very sophisticated piece of, of 
early carpentry um, and an understanding of engineering that that you can you can spread load over a, a damp area technology we still use today and that you can purposefully create an environment that is useful for you and again that separates us uh, you know dramatically from our ancestors of course and are different cultures are different civilizations coming up with these sorts of things independently of each other so if we go to different continents perhaps I think so. Uh, in, in the Amazon rainforest, you find that extressile structural engineering shape being used as a fish trap across really major rivers and, and still used today. Um, you find the technology of things like the wheel being independently invented. The technology of smelting metals out of rock is independently invented. Pottery is independently de- invented. And that, of course, re- requires fire to, to fire your clays hard. So uh, I think all sorts of things are being invented by people across the world who are exploring all the different resources in their environment, so the different sorts of species of tree, what that wood is good for. I mean, we know, for example, because you know, one, of, one, of the, one of the aspects of the dreadful history of colonialism and slavery is, is that we learn to understand the properties of trees and woods from around the world. And some of these trees are really remarkably different from the oaks and ashes and elms we have here. So, for example, lignum vitae, which is a South American hardwood, is so heavy that it sinks in water. Uh, It's the wood used to make the heavy bales for cricket matches on windy days. But more extraordinarily, this wood is so hard and it is self-lubricating, it is still used for the prop shaft bearings on submarines because you don't ever have to change the part. It's it's still the best material, um, and and of course one of the themes in the book which we might pick up on is how we might be entering a new wood age when we go back to appreciating how this ever giving, sustainable, rich, uh, inf- infinitely rich resource can actually provide solutions to problems that we think we had solved. Absolutely, and we will come to that. But it's interesting that you mention the wheel. When is the wheel invented, or should I say specifically the spoked wheel? Ah, okay. Well, I, the wheel and the spoked wheel are rather different things. Um, the, the, wheel, the wheel is a really extraordinary piece of technology simply because of all the things that nature shows us how to do, the wheel isn't one of them. We see whirlpools, we things going round, we see sycamore seeds helicoptering out of the sky, Um but we do not see the wheel in nature. Nature does not have anything that does that. So where does it come from? Um, and I think the key thing to understand is you break the wheel down into its components. You need a shaft. You need a bearing that will hold a rotating object, and then you need something around which it will rotate. Um, so that axle-shaft-bearing combination, um, which seems to have been invented six or seven thousand years ago in concept somewhere probably in two places at once perhaps in three places once in south america where it's never used as a means of transport only as a toy Uh, once in in the fertile crescent of mesopotamia and once on the asian steppes where we now see other vehicles trundling across uh, what used to be the asian steppes um, in a in a in a in a sort of tragic repetition of that um but the spoked wheel, oh, the first wheels are slab wheels. Um, there's a sort of myth that you can cut 
a cheese slice out of a log, drill a hole in it, and 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 put it on an axle, and it'll work. Well, it'll work for a very short while, but wood splits tangentially, so therein lies failure. To make a a, a wheel that's sturdy and will last, you need to cut wood along the grain um, and then create planks from it, which you can then stitch together. It's really quite difficult to do. And um, and and to get anything that isn't a dreadfully rough ride, you need something more sophisticated. And the spoked wheel, um, which may only have been invented once or twice in history, is a piece of engineering that the more you study it, the more you realise how incredibly sophisticated it is. And yet, the, the finest spoked wheel we know of is a wheel on the racing chariot of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun. I don't think there's a finer piece of wheel technology ever been invented. It, it was the Formula One of its day. It had shock absorption. It had torsion control. Um, it, it had anti-roll flexing in it. I mean, it's an extraordinary contraption. And we've never really made anything that's cleverer than that with a wheel. And yet, if you look at a modern cartwheel, such things are still made. And that design hasn't changed at all since since the Roman period. We have a we have a Roman wheel from uh, a fort in Scotland, and it looks exactly like a, a 19th century cartwheel. Um, the point about the wheel is it is it has to have very very specific engineering components to stop itself shattering to pieces. So if you ever look at a, a cartwheel side-on, you'll see that it actually looks like a parasol. It's not like a bicycle wheel. It's not symmetrical. It actually it actually is a is a sort of form of cone, and that is because uh, when a when a, a wheeled vehicle moves under under animal traction, the rear end of a cow or an ox swaggers from side to side, and that thumps outwardly on the axles every step of the way, and the immense forces have to be countered by this bizarre parasol shape, and that's that's why wheels are always made that way. To, I mean, they've been evolving for. 4,000 years. They, they can't get any smarter unless you change the material and make them out of metal. But even so, um, the precision of wooden engineering wheels where everything has to be absolutely perfectly balanced so that it doesn't smash itself to pieces under a load is, is, is I think, one of the great achievements of human technology. Fantastic. And what I find interesting about the way you've, you've written the book is that the central conceit allows you to envisage imaginary conversations between carpenters of different ages. I think there's a section where you imagine a Japanese temple builder talking with a, a carpenter from Buckinghamshire. Yeah, that, that I, I hadn't planned that. Um, but it, it came about, and I suppose that, that proves the concept of the conceit in that I didn't see that coming. And the first sort of intimation I had that that was a way of looking at this was I was trying to understand um, an artifact called Seahenge, which many listeners will remember, which was excavated on the on the beach at Hunstanton 20-odd uh, years ago now. Um, a great hoo-ha about whether it should be excavated or not. Anyway, it was excavated, and it showed that in the spring of the year 2049 BC, that's as precise as we can get it, um, 50 people came together, they split oak posts in half, they trimmed them each with their own individual axe. We know that because uh, an archaeologist called Maisie Taylor analysed the axe marks. Um, and they constructed this 
circle of posts in the sand with an upturned tree trunk at the centre. I mean, really sort of visceral, symbolic idea connecting earth and sky and sea and life and death. I mean, remarkable. But of course, we have no idea whether they were laughing or crying when they put that together. We only know that it has a sort of extraordinary sense of landscape and theatre. And then it was later in the book, I was writing about the Globe Theatre. We happen to know a great deal about how the Globe Theatre was constructed because we have the account books for the timber uh, that went to make it. We also know that the first play performed at the Globe was Henry V, which starts over a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. And then he, Shakespeare apologises. Can we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the Eritasian courts? Beautiful, highly self-conscious metaphor, using this circular theatre as an allegory for all of human society. Um, he talks in, as you like it, about tongues in every tree. So he's, he's very consciously thinking about wooden trees in the way he thinks about society. And of course, we know a great deal about Shakespeare's world. We have his plays, we have his theatre. Um, and that instantly transported me back to see Henge. And then I suddenly thought to myself, what if you transposed a Shakespearean play to see Henge? Say Twelfth Night, which starts on a beach, and it opens with a, a question what country, friends, is this? And I thought, yes, you, you can actually transport ideas across millennia and use cultures to connect with other cultures. And so I thought that was rather fun. Um, and it was something I hadn't thought of. And then I thought, well, okay, in the Museum of the Wood Age, we have these wonderful Neolithic longhouses and some quite sociable spaces, roundhouses, which are you know socially different from longhouses. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to put King Alfred the Great, who as well as being a, a soldier statesman was a woodsman he, because he writes about trees and building houses and a, as an allegory for the civilised mind. Put Alfred the Great with, a, with, a, with an axe in one of those buildings with George Sturt, the master wheelwright of Farnham from the early 20th century and Master Nishioka, the, the last great Japanese temple builder. And they would recognise each other's tools without speaking the same language. They would be able to talk to each other because they would understand the material, the pleasures, the, the, the metaphorical importance of wood. And, and I thought, well, actually, whose who's, who's craftsmanship would be most admired? And I thought, well, Alfred and George Sturt would certainly admire Master Nishioka's temple building because there is no finer craftsmanship in the world than the Japanese temple builders um, who have this unbroken tradition of... Uh, 2,000 years of, of constructing these extraordinary uh, pieces of sacred architecture. And then I thought, well, actually, Master Nishioka himself would be intrigued by the idea of the Victorian sash window. Because <laughs> in its own way, it's an extraordinary piece of both engineering and social display and carpentry. And I thought, yeah, they, those, those people are going to, and of course, I picked three men, but it, you know, there are many, many women woodworkers and woodlers and engineers and craftspeople as well. And I thought, yeah, those people would, would get on really well and they would learn so much from each other and we would learn from listening into that conversation. And so I'm asking, I'm asking readers to do what Shakespeare was asking his audiences to do, to conduct a thought experiment 
in which all these things connect. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. He got himself an axe and he knocked up a cabin in the woods. I mean, he doesn't say that he went home every weekend to get his mother to do his washing and all those. There's a slightly false uh, picture, but nevertheless, he founded a, a an aspect of the conservation movement, which, of course, has a, a continuous, unbroken tradition now. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply what about the everyday wooden objects that perhaps we take for granted? Where would they fit into your museum? Well, I, I would take you back to Robinson Crusoe, who is, <laughs> who's fictionally stranded on his island, and he goes back to the shipwreck, and he recovers everything he can, and he realises very quickly, although he's not a, a practical man in himself, he realises very quickly the most important thing to recover from that ship is the toolkit. He needs saws, he needs hammers, he needs axes, he needs nails. And then, he, of course, he recovers timber. And then um, he floats it back to his island on a raft and he starts to construct a, a new life for himself, a dwelling and so on. And it's remarkable that one thing he never learns how to make is a barrel. And he talks explicitly, he said, no matter how hard I tried, I never learned to make a barrel. It's too complicated, it's too difficult. And yet barrels were ubiquitous for... 18, 1900 years as a means of transporting goods, both dry goods, um, as drink, as places to preserve things. Um, the whole history of colonialism is entirely based on the barrel as a universal measurement of goods, 
as a universal means of transporting goods around the world, keeping them preserved, so that the Royal Navy ran on barrels. Without, without barrels, it, it simply couldn't function. And they're remarkable things. Um, we have a, a, a Roman barrel from London, which was dismantled and packed away because you, you can, you know, the barrel is the original flat pack if you know what you're doing. <laughs> you need all the components and you need the hoops and a hammer, but essentially you can break them down and reuse them. And as we know, um, you know, barrels are recycled. The best whiskey comes from barrels which have had a previous life. Um, so the barrel, I think, is, is one of those apparently simple things that is technically incredibly difficult to make, and yet it just works. Um, and then I suppose my favourite one, I was, I was casting around for thinking, what, what's the most ubiquitous thing that we would find made of wood? And I think, well, a wooden spoon or a chopping board. And then I thought, no, no, it's the pallet. It's the, it's the Euro pallet. All, almost all world goods now travel around on pallets. Anybody can make a pallet. It's... <laughs> The Euro palette, of course, is made to very precise dimensions. It is a European palette, and it has an exact weight and exact length and an exact size. And, and yet, and yet, it, palettes are almost invisible because we take them for granted. And it and it stands as a rather good metaphor for the history of wood. Is that we don't we wouldn't know we'd lost it until we until we threw away the last wooden object and threw away the knowledge of how to make things out of wood. Um, and you know, thankfully. Having almost lost all our craftspeople, we are now, you know, since oh, we'll probably go on to talk about this, but you know, there has been a great revival in understanding and, and the need to, to pass on those skills. And of course, in lots of parts of the world, those skills are all still absolutely current and necessary. Um, and we can learn from people we once regarded as primitive savages whose woodworking skills are vastly superior to those of most of us living in the in the wealthy west certainly so it seems the key question then is has the wood age really ended well uh, i said in the book um only slightly tongue-in-cheek that the wood ended in wood age ended in the year 1779 and and, and the reason I, uh, I claim that date that i pluck out of the air is because in that year um a bridge was constructed across the Iron Bridge Gorge, the name is the clue, uh, made of iron, and yet, although it was envisaging a new age and a new material that would become the dominant material for the next 100, 200 years, all the jointing in the Iron Bridge is a carpentry joint. It's all mortise and tenons and, and dovetails and all sorts of things. So essentially, it is it is a product of the the woodsman's mind and engineering translated into a new material. And after that, of course, iron becomes the building material. Um, and uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is how, during the Napoleonic Wars, the vast number of uh, pulley blocks consumed by the Royal Navy, something like 100,000 every year, were all made by hand. And various people are trying to mechanise this, mechanize this process. And it took a, a remarkable... French royalist émigré engineer called Marc Brunel, father of, of course, of the famous Isambard Kingdom, um, a toolmaker called Henry Maudsley, and a, a navy commissioner called Samuel Bentham to come together and design a set of 63 machines, all of them made in iron and brass, that would mechanise the production of a pulley block, which takes something over 40 different processes to create, all of which had already 
always been done by hand. In three years, they built these machines, designed and built them, put them into operation, and those machines, several of which are now in the Science Museum, were still operating in the Portsmouth Dockyard block mill until 1963. Um, and in a sense, that that is the technology that carries us from the Wood Age into the modern age. So it doesn't really matter when you say the Wood Age ends, but it certainly, to all intents and purposes, ended in the late 18th century. Indeed. And if we take that view then, how did people react to the growth of industrialization? Is that is that why we get things like the arts and crafts movement, for instance? Yes. First of all, in the 19th century, you see a reaction against uh, manufacture, mechanization, um, the, the loss of, individually of, the cro- of individuality of the craftsperson, um, from cottage textile weaving to the great cotton mills. Um, everything is mechanized. And there's a reaction against this, led by people like um, William Morris, of course, the, the arts and crafts movement. Um, who want to go back to an idea of craftsmanship and simplicity and, if you like, a slightly patronising false view of uh, the peasant craftsman as hero. And one of the ironies of that movement is that the arts and crafts craftsmanship products are almost exclusively patronised by very, very wealthy people <laughs> because craftsmanship is now gone back to being an elite, not the everyday work of farmers who, of course, still carry on men- mending their own ploughs and mending their own cartwheels right through the 19th century into the 20th century and up, up until the Second World War, really. So uh, there are all sorts of ironies involved in this idea of conservation and preservation. Um, uh, uh, and, of course, there's a, the famous example of Henry David Thoreau, who, who in 1839 or 40, whenever it was, went back to the woods to live on Walden Pond in that uh, wonderful book he wrote about it and he he wished to go back and live simply he got himself an axe and he knocked up a cabin in the woods i mean he doesn't say that he went home every weekend to get his mother to do his washing and all those there's a slightly false uh, picture but nevertheless he founded a, a an aspect of the conservation movement which of course has a, a continuous unbroken tradition now conservation of of environment and the natural pseudo-natural landscape and craftsmanship go hand in hand and still do. So um, that movement, which is a reaction against the loss of the Wood Age, has revived it in some respects. Although, you know, most things we use are now made of plastic, which is, of course, an an unsustainable material with a one-way ticket to oblivion. Nevertheless, it's very handy stuff. Sure. And you mentioned Thoreau there. Going right to very recently, you talk about a chap named Ben Law who built a house in West Sussex in the middle of the woods and it was the subject of an episode of Grand Designs. Can you tell me about him? Yes, uh, Ben is a remarkable man. Um, remarkable because he he wanted to do something like Henry David Thoreau, it, but he didn't want to do it um, to experiment or explore. He wanted to do it because that's what he wanted to do with his life. He is a woodsman. Um, he struggled against all sorts of challenges. Our planning system does not like people going into woods and building houses with their own hands of their own wood. I know because I tried in the early 90s to do exactly the same thing and, and I was stopped from doing it. Um, but Ben Law succeeded through perseverance, his skill as a craftsman, um, and he built his own house. Um, and more or less as soon as lockdown ended in 20. 
well, whichever the, the 20s it was, 21 or 20, um, I, I went to spend some time with Ben and, and, uh, and signed up for one of his courses in, in building in, in the wood that he works with, which is sweet chestnut, imported by, by uh, a, a previous colonial army 2,000 years ago um, because Roman soldiers can't do without their chestnuts. Um, but it's a wonderful building material and uh, Ben still lives and works out of this wonderful woodland house which many many people saw on grand designs um i've been in it so it's a i mean i'm consumed with envy um and he he teaches people about uh woods and woodsmanship he teaches a philosophy of precision craftsmanship and love of material um and he constructs buildings which are useful buildings um, and they're relevant buildings they're sustainable they're wonderful they're tactile um, you can fix them when they go wrong, um, and he's a. Uh, you know, Ben is not the only person doing this, but he's he's a shining example of how we can re-engage with the material on which a part of our national mythology is is predicated. You know, we, you know, English oak is is a material and a tree and a and a and a cultural symbol that we completely rely on in our national mythology. You know, the wooden walls of England with the Royal Navy saved us from invasion. Um, and, and you know, kings hid in oak trees. Yeah, but the, the Boscobel oak. Yeah. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Um, and we celebrate our 2,000-year-old yew trees. In, in a sense, of course, we also now sentimentalise trees. The idea of cutting a tree down seems to be evil to some people. Well, I cut trees down all the time and they grow again. That's that's what nature does. And every every eight years I can coppice my hazel rods to build hurd- make hurdles with and every 20 years I can cut down ash trees, well, if there are any left after we've killed them all, um, to build buildings with. And, and Ben is doing this, you know, in the real world, and it's not a fake. It's, he, he isn't a museum. He's a working man um, who preserves a tradition that is still utterly relevant, I think. Um, and, and we may want to you know, say something about modern wooden engineering. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting. So that brings me to my next point, which is what is the future of wood then and the people that work with this material? Well, the future of wood is that until we do something really stupid like cut the last tree down... Um, wood is still the most sustainable engineering material we have. Uh, each type of wood has its own properties. I wouldn't build a house out of sycamore if I were you, but I would make a chair. On the television, we've seen probably the greatest, one of the greatest pieces of wooden engineering in the world, the roof of Westminster Hall, built in the early 14th century, if memory serves, and, and still one of the most extraordinary. I, I was there a few months ago, and it is still one of the most amazing pieces of engineering craftsmanship uh, that survives. And it's a mere 700 years old, which I think you could call sustainable. But the, there's a new movement uh, in, in construction now, which I, I think is really interesting. Uh, wood is being revitalised as an engineering material in, in two forms. One is called glue lam, where you take essentially big, thick planks of wood and you join them together with glue and bolts and so on, and you can bend them as you do so, and you can create really very large pieces of engineering with them. So I think the largest wooden engineered span is is one of the American football stadiums, and it's something like a 400-foot span. Um, that's as big as anything you can do in steel. Um, and the tallest tower block 
well, the last, the last time I checked, the tallest town block in the world was in Norway and it was 80 metres high. That's something like 18 storeys. Uh, in uttering the sentence, I will be out of date because there are many, many much bigger wooden buildings being constructed. Um, the footprint of a wooden building is much smaller than for a steel and concrete building. They weigh much less. Um, thousands and thousands of years ago, people were putting up timber buildings or putting timber members in their stone buildings in earthquake zones because wood is a shock absorber. And from, you know, people in South America or in India who are still growing living bridges to, to span the, the rivers near their homes to people like Ben Law, um, to the most modern engineering, very, very highly sophisticated engineering in, in mass wood. Um, you know, wood still has a future, um, you know, and the palette is the palette is, if you like, a sort of rather simple, simple symbol of just how reliant we still are on it and its and its possibilities. So to close, then I suppose, would it be a stretch to say that the Museum of the Wood Age, hypothetically, would be a a museum of humanity in some sense? Yeah, and you know, and I didn't and I didn't start out thinking that it was that big a theme, but a, but as the book went on, as my thinking went on, I realised it absolutely is a history of humanity. We are we are above all a technological species. We, the unique capability of the human brain, is to learn how to do something we didn't know we needed how how to do. Um, we we play for the sake of it. The bow and arrow is that a child's a toy? Um, charcoal, the ability to smelt metal, is that. Is that engineering forethought or is that accident? Many of these things will never answer because the artefacts are gone. But what's so beautiful is that all the technologies of the wood age are still available to us. We can whittle a stick. We can weave a, a wattle panel. We can recreate a Viking ship. We can just about build a Japanese temple. <laughs> and, and we can re-envision our urban landscapes in wood, if we so choose. Um, and, uh, you know, I would hate to be a sort of ranting proselytizer saying, shaking my fist and saying, you're all mad, we must build everything in wood. Nevertheless, the wood is, you know, we, we live in a modern world and steel is wonderful and titanium is wonderful and concrete's a, a superb material. But um, in celebrating wood as a, as a creative technology... I think we are celebrating what makes humans curious, ingenious, and whether you call us successful as species is another matter, but certainly successful in terms of uh, of our abilities to adapt and create and, and invent. That was Max Adams. His new book, The Museum of the Wood Age, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 